0: Today's scripture reading will be in Mark chapter fourteen, one through twenty-six. Mark chapter fourteen, one through twenty-six. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover and the festival of the un- of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival; they said, or the people may riot. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found the things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were eating, reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, "'Surely you don't mean me.' "'It is one of the twelve,' he replied, "'one who dips bread into the bowl with me. "'The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, "'but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. "'It would be better for him if he had not been born.' "'While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, "'and when he had given thanks, he broke it "'and gave it to his disciples, saying, "This is my "'Take it, this is my body.' "'Then he took a cup.' And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word of the Lord. Um, It's our joy to open
1: up the word of God with you, and throughout the fall and spring, we have been talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, our goal is to be more like him, made in his image and character. And the very force and the very agent that make us in the likeness of Christ is really deeply experiencing his profound love for us. Experiencing to the skin level, deep down to your heart, of his love is actually what changes us. And that's what we are going to talk about today. In a movie, Interstellar, maybe some of you have seen that, directed by Christopher Nolan, released in 2014, there are two main characters in the movie. Uh, There is Dr. Brand, who is a scientist And there's a Cooper, the pilot who flies the rocket. And they're on a mission to find a habitable place in a space when the earth becomes inhabitable. And as they are going about finding this new place for the humanity to live, they get a little discussion about what love is all about. So here, Cooper says, so you are a scientist, Brand. And Dr. Brand says, so listen to me. When I say that love isn't something that we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something, Cooper says. Love has meaning. Yes, social utility, social binding, child rearing. Brand, we love people who have died. Where is the social utility in that? Cooper says, none. Brand responds by saying, Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. Love is the one thing we are capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that even if we can't understand it. Now here, in this, in this scene, they're arguing about the meaning and the purpose and the use of love. Cooper is utilitarian, pragmatic about it, that love is only means to an end. It's good for social utility, child-rearing purpose, but there is no intrinsic value in love in itself. Dr. Brent, on the other side, believes that love has intrinsic value itself, Regardless of its use, its useless, it is far beyond just utilitarian point of view that love itself perhaps transcends all time and culture. Now, why do I bring up and talk about this love today? Without a hint of sentimentality, today you will see in our text that love is actually what changes us. You will see two loves in our text today. First love, you will see Mary's love for Jesus by breaking this alabaster jaw, pouring for Jesus. And you will also see another love of Jesus, his unwavering commitment and love to his disciples, even unto the death, his love for you and me. And to the degree that you experience that love in your life. It will transform you. It will change you. So I pray that today, those who are looking for true love, in the end, we are human. We look for true belonging. We want to be known for who we are, not only for our best, but also for our flaws. We want to be known, but we are desperate. We are afraid to be known for who we are because we are afraid of rejection. But I pray that you will truly experience this safe love of Jesus, that it's okay to be known for every flaw, every joy and sorrow of who you are, yet you are still accepted and loved just as who you are. It's something that you and I desperately need. You need to know and experience this love of Jesus to experience heart change. So may the Spirit of God make the love of our God be very tangible as we dive in our text. So three themes, three characteristics of love that we will explore in today's text is that first, love is paradoxical. Second, it is unwavering. And third, it is truly life-changing. So first, we will talk about the paradoxical nature of love. It's sometimes irrational. It doesn't make sense. Secondly then, we will talk about the unwavering quality of love even though sometimes it seems irrational and doesn't make sense, it's beautiful. It's patient. It's steadfast. And third, we will talk about the very transformative power of love. It changes us. When you properly receive that love, it changes you. It's the greatest cure of your insecurity and greatest cure for your desire for belonging, to receive that love. So let's dive in first, the paradoxical nature of love. the love is sacrifice. Love actually puts you in a very vulnerable position. Look verse 3 and 4, the first account here. Here, when you look at four through, 3 through 5, here, Mary comes to the very expensive alabaster jar to anoint Jesus, very expensive perfume, verse 3 says, and she broke the jar and poured it oil on Jesus' head. But those people who are around witnessing, witnessing what Mary is doing, they were like, what are you doing? That's a waste of money. That's a very expensive perfume. You could have given that to the poor. Now, as a rule, at the etiquette of at that time, it was a breach of an etiquette for a woman to break the fellowship of a man. So here, Jesus is having fellowship with a bunch of men here. And here, Mary breaches the etiquette by interjecting this scene. Why in the world would Mary do that? I mean, it's a breach of an etiquette. It involves social disdain. It involves her reputation. In the end, she gonna end up spending all her saving account here. It does not make sense at all for Mary to courageously interrupt this fellowship because she does not, it's not like she had any agenda. She's not going to Jesus. Jesus, I need you to heal me. Jesus, I need you to help me here. But the only reason that Mary courageously interrupted this fellowship to express her love to Jesus. If love has only utilitarian point of view, this is completely risky, does not make sense, and it just puts her in very vulnerable place. And those people who are at the table, who only as a utilitarian point of view, that love is only means to something. They're like, that's such a waste, Mary. What are you doing? You've got no idea what you're doing. This is not waste. But to their point of view, this is a waste because they don't conceive what love is all about. And love is paradoxical it's sacrificial in its nature it has the giving nature did you notice here in verse five that this is worth of a year's wage and money given to poor the denarius was a normal wage in palestine that that was literally she just gave up the year worth of her salary uh, because she loved jesus but that's what you hear a lot that's very true what you don't hear a lot which i am surprised not that many people point this out it's not that at the time there was equal payment for woman. It's, it's also there was no career for woman at the time. It's not that she could have worked for a an year and earned this perfume. She could not have done that. Woman didn't work like that. There was no career woman. What does that mean? That means it did not have only monetary value. This is most likely family inheritance throughout the generation. So this is not only monetary value, but also sentimental value that she's pouring out at Jesus. And not only that, did you notice in verse 3, she did not just pour out the oil and save it. She broke the jar completely, which symbolized totality of her gift and love and devotion to Jesus. If love is only good for child-rearing, social utility, this is complete waste of what Mary has done. Unless somehow our god designed love to be that way of giving that way of love is what god is exactly intended and not only that when you look at next passage the famous the lord's supper account if you look at lord's supper account it's verse 12 to 26 but did you notice how the lord's supper account is sandwiched like look what comes right before the lord's supper account what comes right after Right before that, verse 10 and 11, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an hour for an opportunity to hand him over. Right before Jesus demonstrates his love for disciples till the end, there's a, Prediction of his betrayal. And right after the Lord's Supper 27, you will all fall away. There is defection. What Lord loved in placing the Last Supper right in between the betrayal and the defection, it shows how radical Jesus' love is for us. It does not make sense. If I know my friends will betray me or defect me, there's no way I love them. I to, forget that. I want to love those who love me. But somehow, so me, the Lord puts his demonstration of love right in between betrayal and the defection of the disciple. It's irrational. It's risky. Not only love is risky and sacrificial, but when you think about our culture and days, you know what culture and day we live in today, when you think about it, we live in the day and age of productivity and efficiency, isn't it? So How can we make life better? Always. When you consider the our days and our day and age of productivity and efficiency, love is the most inefficient thing. There is no such thing as productivity in love. Love requires you to die, it's paradoxical, and it's irrational. Love doesn't work that way. If you say to your friends, I only love you, help you, as long as you love me, That seems so contractual. It's not really giving in its nature. It's almost like, as long as you give me what I want, I will love you. That's not like really only utilitarian point of view is love like that. I mean, love requires to die and there's no such thing as convenience or productivity in love. In fact, if you try to pursue efficiency in love, productivity in love, it kind of demeans it. I love you so much, I want to spend five minutes with you. Let's make it most productive five minutes. You're like, what are you doing? Some people say, hey, parenting, utilitarian view of love. You only love your children because that's your investment for future. The child will take care of you when you grow old. You don't love like that, do you? Love is sacrificial in its nature. When you just pursue efficiency and productivity in love, it cheapens it. So it doesn't work to be like I want efficiency in my love. So let me write a love poem to my lover. What? Uh, I don't want to spend too much time. Chat GPT, write a love poem for my lover. <laughs> Honey, I wrote a poem for you. It took 10 seconds for me to write that. It doesn't work that way. I neither conform or nor deny that I tried that and it didn't fly. <laughs> you can cultivate love through efficiency and productivity. It's irrational in our days that I want things to get done, but love becomes just such a no use in that. So what's the use of love then? Because at the center of Christianity, actually love dwells. Love at its heart of Christianity is love. Love doesn't make sense unless God designed that love to be giving and emptying of himself, just like Jesus does. Yet it's the very agent that changes you and I today. So let's see how love, despite its irrationality, how it's enduring, how it's patient, how it's unwavering. Second, unwavering quality of love, it's characteristic. Look verse six, what does Jesus say? Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Here, Jesus affirms Mary that she has done something beautiful. She shows proper priority you will always have the living around you. But what Mary has done to me is for my funeral, for my burial. The verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. It's irrational and wasteful to the eyes that who just don't get it. What a waste of your perfume. But Jesus said that love is beautiful. This is the type of love you and I need. And yet, as beautiful as marriage love to Jesus was, there is even more, if I can put it this way, scandalous, more startling, more sobering, more daring love written right after that, which is how Jesus loved his disciple and even Judas till the end in the Lord's Supper. Now, we are about to study in deep about what Judas and what disciples have done. But as we do that, I don't want you to just hear, oh, that Judas, I'll never do that. That disciples. I kind of want you to inject you. Because in one sense, we all have betrayed God, fall away from God. When we took that fruit from the Garden of Eden, we all have fallen away from God, His goodness. So, Yeah, you will see how much Jesus says loved his disciple and Judas even all the way till the end. And to do that, I mean Mark 14 is here, but go to John chapter thirteen. Let me elaborate some time here, because it also records quite a bit about the Lord's Supper in detail. Like it begins John thirteen one this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end how did he love them unto the end he loved those who were about to betray and defect him in three very distinctive ways through foot washing through giving Judas the honor seat and through dipping the bread together what I mean by that look at like when you look at John 13 10 and 11 the foot washing comes right before ceremony you know what does Jesus in verse 10 and 11? And you are clean, although not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. In a sense, Jesus saying, Judas, my friend, I am bending down my knee, wash your feet, even though I know you are going to betray me. There's no way I'll, I don't know whether I wash anyone's feet even if I love them. He's the master of all universe. So he bended down his knee. If I knew Judas wasn't going to betray me, I was like, okay, I'll wash others' disciples' feet. No, I'm not going to even wash disciples' feet. Why? Because they're going to all defect him anyway. But Jesus nonetheless bends down his knee, extends his love and forgiveness. Let me not only wash you physically, but let me wash you spiritually. This had been the wonderful opportunity for Judas. Oh, I was about to betray Jesus for love of money. But Jesus loves me like this. What a wonderful opportunity he had to turn around and repent. He doesn't. Not only that, now, it becomes pretty clear, John, when you look at 23 and 26, most scholars agree, unlike many famous paintings of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper most likely having the U shape of sitting together rather than all flat table, all looking at each other. And it is most likely that Jesus has given the honored seat to Judah, his left and on his right to John. Jesus exalt Judas until the end. Jesus have him sit next to him. If it's not directly next to one after, that was the same distance that he can share the bowl of dipping the bread together. Even in the moment of his betrayal, let me exalt you to the honored seat. It was there near together for Judas to even hear Jesus harp it. What a wonderful opportunity for Judas it would have been. Jesus, I am so sorry. You love me like this. Jesus, fully knowing what Judah is about to do, still extend his love and honor and exalt him in that. And not only that, yet it's climax. When you look at verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? They ask, who's going to betray him? Verse 26, John 13, 26, he says, It is the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread when I have dipped in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. In one sense, you look at it, whoa, Jesus is calling out Judas like that. That's right. In the other sense, this is on the other side is an incredible act of love. Because in the culture of the day, to take a morsel from the table, to dip it in the common dish and to offer it to another was gesture of friendship. I am reaching out to you. For example, in the book of Ruth, when Ruth comes to Boaz, Ruth 2.14 writes that Boaz says, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. Mark 14 in our today's text 20 says, The one who is dipping with me. Jesus is sharing food is an intimate thing. Back then and even now, sharing the meal, there's something precious about that. Jesus washes Judah's feet. Jesus exalts Judas in communion table. Jesus shares the meal together. Judas, this is my gesture of friendship and forgiveness. Will you take this offer? Does Jesus know that Judas is about to betray? trained? Absolutely. But his unwavering commitment and love for Judas does not change. Thousand times you might fail him. He will still love you unto the death. What a wonderful opportunity it would have been for Judas to turn around. Perhaps the story would have been different when Judas finally realized Jesus unto death loves me. But what does John 13, 27 say? As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. After all this opportunity, Judas turned his back. When somebody loves you, shows unwavering commitment to you, you have two paths to choose. Either you can continue to harden your heart or you can begin, be melted by the love and be warmed by that and change your life as you receive that love. Judas chose another path. And John ends that section very carefully in verse 30. As soon as Judas has taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Yeah, it was the night of the day. But it was also dark night of his soul. After rejecting Jesus' offer for love over and over and over again, Judas will carry out what he intended fully. So today, church, don't think this is just Judas. Every time you failed him, Jesus continues to reach out to you. He still bends down to wash your feet. Jesus still invites you to fellowship with him, sharing the meal together with you. You're about to do that in a few minutes. As Psalm Psalm 95 says, Do not harden your hearts, as you did in rebellion, as you did that day of trial in the wilderness. Jesus' offer was genuine to Judah. Jesus' offer is genuine to you and I to receive that love. But as you see this text, I pray that you get to see, oh, Jesus, how could you do that? Every time Judah is about to fail you, you keep extending yourself, keep reaching out to Judas. Church, do you know Jesus' enduring love for you? Every time you fail him, perhaps you might feel like, but I'm not like Judas. I'm not going to stab at Jesus, sell Jesus for money. But many of us are also like disciples, maybe. We might all defect him. Judas betrayed disciples defect, but Jesus still bends down his knee to wash their feet. Jesus, knowing that they all fall away, still spends his very last meal with them. That's his love for you and I. Two paths will you harden your heart or will you be melted by his unwavering love for you? And if your heart is warmed by how much he has pursued you and loves you, to the degree that you know that it will change you? Because it has power in it, third and lastly, the transformative power of love. Coming back to our Mark text here, I have read this text about, I don't know, 100, if not a thousand times of my life. Take this, my body. This is for you. Like first Mark 14, Jesus says, Take it. This is my body, 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is a radical statement. Why is that? Because Lord's Supper, at its heart, its origin of it is the Passover meal. And when the Passover meal is all about remembering God's power that delivered Israelite from the bondage of Egyptian, it is also remembering the affliction of their ancestor, what they've endured. So if you look at Deuteronomy 16.3, it says as you take the," the Passover passage, it says as you take it, it's the bread of affliction of your ancestor. But Jesus does not come here in the Lord's Supper, this Passover meal, and says, Eat this bread of affliction of your ancestor. But what does Jesus say? This is bread of my affliction. This is my body that is about to be given to you. This is not just the blood of a lamb that will be posted on the door in the times of Exodus, but this will be through my blood this time. God delivered you through his strength in the bondage of Egyptian slavery. Now I'll deliver you through my weakness I will be that lamb. This is my body. Not just, it's just my br- this my bread. This bread is affliction of me. Not you remembering your ancestor. He sets the new tone. And to the degree that you know this love, it will begin to change you. It's, we talk about, oh, Jesus loves me this I know. Jesus loves me this I know. But sometimes it's really hard to experience that. Uh, the other day, Kyla and I were having dinner with one of our friends who was deeply hurting. I mean, she was just so hurting in her life um, after her friendship ended very abruptly and traumatically after five years. There was no closure in it. She was very traumatized by it. A year and a half later, she was still deeply hurting. So we're eating dinner together. She knows that I'm a Christian minister. So And I didn't know what her worldview was like, so I'm trying not to use Christian jargon, and I'm trying my best to explain when I was walking through a tough time, like what carried me through was knowing that God is good, how much he has loved me, um, that he's sovereign over all things in as late term as possible, as best as I can. And I'm trying to explain it to her, who's hurting by all this rejection. And Kyla, after listening for a while, gently interrupts and says, Ajin, you're able to arrive at the thoughts and belief because foundationally, you knew that you are loved. For her, there is a gap that she doesn't know that she's loved. Her experience has taught her only the otherwise. All she feels is rejection right now. And to that, our friend just begins to cry in dinner table after the French ended abruptly. To me, when I was going through walking time, foundationally, I knew even the earth would fall apart. I know I am loved. But all she felt was rejection and no love in her life after that friendship ended such traumatically. And while she's crying, she tells us that she ran a marathon recently. And while she was running, her high school teacher, former high school teacher, decades later, showed up to run with her and how much that meant to her to experience the love that she's not just rejected, but she's loved. to, to the degree that you know that you are loved, that would be the greatest cure of your fear of rejection, of your fear of not belonging. There are so many times that I've failed Jesus. Many of you know I studied my first graduate studies in Dallas. When you go to Dallas Seminary Campus, at the center of the campus, there's a huge garden there. Center of the seminary, there's a little sculpture of Jesus washing disciples' feet. I don't even know how many days and nights I sat there at the sculpture alone. I said, God, this is Jen again. I messed up. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm always failing you a thousand times over and over. And I would sit at the sculpture every day and just pray. But Jesus, used to love me. You still wash my feet. I'm not alone. You see me. When I feel like no one else sees me and hears me, you are there to wash my feet. Even when I fail you, you're still there to love me. Do you know that Jesus loved you? When you really experience that kind of love, when you feel like nobody sees you, when you feel like nobody really hears you, when you feel like you fail him over and over again, to know that, hey, Take this bread. Invite, let me invite you this friendship. To the degree that you're melted by it, your life will be changed. Some of you might say, But Jen, nobody loves me like that. I don't know that kind of love. Let me show you that love. Let me show you how the love is seen in our life. Just about a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was some sort of pastor's fellowship. So I went uh, to downtown Philadelphia, and just about 20, 30 pastors gathered in. Philadelphia area, and the leader kind of gave us an assignment. Today's assignment for, you, assignment for you for your retreat is to explore Philadelphia Art Museum for two hours and come back and we'll dialogue over that during the lunchtime. I said, all right, what a retreat. Well, let me do that. So I go up. I was like, that's quite a fun assignment for pastors. So we all scatter. We go through the Philadelphia Art Museum. And I'm in third floor, this, which is, I don't know whether you have been to Philadelphia Art Museum. There's a lot of, like, art of. There's a lot of art. Obviously, it's art museum. <laughs> there's a lot of sculptures, painting, and art. And then there's historical art section on the third floor. When you look at historical arts, oftentimes art and religion are so tied together. So you get to see so many different religion and art. There's Eastern religion art, like Indian religion art, European art, all that. So there like, as I'm walking through, there's Eastern religion and art. There's so many Buddha just sitting down. As, just like Buddhism believes, it's all about illumination it's about knowing that this world is illusion that's how you gain peace detachment just like Buddha is sitting there connected to nature and yet independent from it I'm like yeah, that's one way to live life I can see that that's one way to maybe find a in your heart maybe that's one way for us to change and as I just saw so many Buddha sculpture like that I was like okay I see how they function to change their lives when you get worked up oh, think that this is all fake this is all illusion you can get by that way. And then I went to Indian section. There are a lot of like temples, like sculptures, things like that. Or those gods are so fierce, like frightening, fear-mongering. I was like, this is a little terrifying. And then I realized, sure, that's one way to get by life too. As in like, there's God who's there to judge you and condemn you. You better do right. You better not mess up. I was like, okay, otherwise this God might get me. That's one way to comprehend your life. Then I went to this a lot of European art section. What shocked me, I knew this, but it hit me in a fresh way. I think I saw like 20, 30 crucifixion artwork of sculptures and all that. And I realized that I saw so many different paintings and artwork at the center of Christianity. There's paradoxical love of God. God dying for our sin. You don't do that. You know what God does? God demands you to die. Kings demand you to die so that they can live. But our God, in his weakness, bleeding on a cross, and his unwavering commitment is evident. He could have come down He's a powerful God. In the end, he delivered and killed all the Egyptian army to lead the Israelites out of their bondage. But he still stood there. And that love was somehow beautiful to me. John 15, 13 tells us, there is no greater love than this, to lay down your life for your friend. John, Jesus pursued you and loved you to quite literally to death. Do you know that you are seen and loved by Jesus? Every time you fail him, there is still a hope for you because our love laid down his life paradoxically and sacrificially. That's how he designed it. And his unwavering commitment of his love to me melt my heart. Shelton, every time you fail him, you might feel like disciples and Judas. See him, how much he has loved you. And I pray that somehow in some way, as we partake in this Lord's Supper today, this is my body. This is no longer just a bread of affliction. This is my affliction. This is my blood. I pray that you sense and feel the love of Jesus. You are seen and heard and loved. Let me pray for us. God, Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you touch our hearts. I'm sure there are many of us, you feel like, does anybody really know what I'm thinking and feeling? Does anyone really see me? Or there are also many of us who feel like, God, I've failed you so many times. I'm not even worthy to approach you. But Lord, we see in our text today how your unwavering love, steadfast love, just continues to reach out even till death. Oh God, we are loved. God, my words fall short, but your words never do that. Spirit of God, take this word into the heart of our people. And as you partake in communion, help us to really experience his love. It becomes life life transforming. Help us to not harden our hearts, but soften our hearts in the presence of you. God, this is work of you. Spirit of God, work in our hearts. We beg and we pray. We need to know that you love us, and we need to experience that. Oh, so today and this week and as we live our lives, help us to truly embrace your love in our lives. In your precious name we pray, amen.